Uh, all right, turn to Mark chapter 3, if you will, as we continue our study of the book of Mark, our series called uh, The Cross-Shaped Life. We're going to continue this study, go through very slowly and very thoroughly the gospel of Mark. So listen then as I read for us Mark 3, beginning at verse 20. And then he, that is Jesus, went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. The word of the Lord. Obviously, a very heavy passage. Um, just let you know, because it's a heavy passage, it's a very difficult passage. It's been looked at a lot of different ways over time. Because of that, I want to be really careful in how I treat this passage. It's going to take a little longer than usual. I don't mean hours, but uh, bear with me because it will be a little bit of a longer sermon. So plan not to be someplace at 12 noon. It's not going to happen. But uh, buckle up, and I believe we will really be uh, both fascinated and challenged and spurred on by what Jesus says here. We're going to talk today about the unforgivable sin. And because I always feel a heavy weight of responsibility, this one, this time, I feel more. So let's go to the Lord. I know Michael led us in prayer already, but I'd like to ask the Lord to guide us as we study this very important passage of Scripture. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much that we come to a book that is not an ordinary book, a book that has been inspired by your Holy Spirit, written by various people, but authoritative, infallible. And yet, Lord, there are some times when we come to your word and we stumble We want to make sure we understand it well and apply it correctly. And so I ask that, Spirit of God, you would lead us today. May my my words accurately reflect what you have put here. And may we all be pointed to Jesus as we leave today. May we see him more clearly and follow him more wholeheartedly because we've been together. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I read and studied this passage this week, uh, one of the things I normally do is just check out a few websites, see what other people have said. 
And one of them I looked at had a number of comments underneath the post that someone had made, someone had written about this passage. And this this comment was, I think, very important for you to hear. Here's a person who read about the unforgivable sin, and she says this, I have read stuff on blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and I am really scared. I know I've said bad things, and I should not have. Does never have forgiveness really mean never? I want to know I'm saved. I want to stop worrying and stop being scared. Can I be forgiven? There could not be a more important question for us to ask and answer than that this morning. Can you be forgiven? Is there a sin that God really will not forgive? If so, what is that sin and how do you know if you've committed it? And on an even more practical level, many of you, perhaps most of you, don't worry that you've committed the unpardonable sin. But if you're honest, you still know that you have done and thought and said many, many things that displease the Lord. How can you be assured that you're really and truly forgiven? Well, let's start by getting our bearings, spend a little bit of time getting the context of this passage. Where are we in the Gospel of Mark? Some of you may not have been with us as we've gone through this book, so let's kind of get that straight. At this point in Mark's Gospel, Jesus has become a very polarizing figure. Verse 20 says that so many people were pressing upon Jesus that the disciples and he could not even eat. Now, that's pretty bad. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you you were hungry and you couldn't even eat. That's a lot of people. They were pressing in upon him. And this has been true now for some time in the ministry of Jesus. Everywhere he goes, he's followed by huge crowds. But at the same time, Jesus was increasingly raising the suspicion and the wrath of the religious establishment. We saw a few weeks ago, for example, that the Pharisees had already begun to plot how to kill Jesus. And now, in verse 22, it says that scribes from Jerusalem had come down from Jerusalem to where Jesus was, presumably in Capernaum, to investigate him. They were calling Jesus demon-possessed. Who were these scribes? Well, these were the seminary professors of the day. They were the religious experts. They were Pharisees who knew the Old Testament scriptures backwards and forwards. They understood the law like nobody else did. And they were saying to themselves and to each other, Jesus is casting out demons by the power of Satan. So, Jesus has friends. They're following him everywhere he goes. He also has foes. And then he also has a family. How did the family feel about Jesus? Well, look at verse 21. They thought he was wacko. It says there that he's out of his mind. See, we presume that Jesus' father, Joseph, had passed away by now. But his mother, Mary, is still very much alive and well. He has brothers and sisters. They, They had come to where Jesus was. And it appears that they had 
wiggled their way through the crowd and grabbed Jesus by the arm and said, Come on, Jesus, let's get out of here. You've got to go to bed. You've been working yourself silly. You need two aspirin and call a doctor in the morning. You are, you are going nuts. I mean, that was their opinion about their family member. That had to hurt, right? That had to hurt that his own family felt that way. I mean, here were the people whom Jesus looked to the most to be on his side. And yet they misunderstood him. They were marginalizing him. They were thinking he was crazy. Okay, so that's the context of our text this morning. Now let's dive into the main points of the passage. I want to tell you three things that I think get at the heart of this text. First, this is foundational. There is a sinister spiritual being in this world who is an enemy of God and of his people, and we call him Satan. There's an enemy of God and of all God's people who is sinister, he is spiritual, he is supernatural, and he exists, and he is in the world. In this passage, he's given three different names. First is Beelzebul, I'll talk about that in a moment, verse 22. He's also called the Prince of Demons, and Satan, which is the name I've already used, is mentioned in verse 23 and 26. Now, Beelzebul, that one probably did puzzle you a little bit. Beelzebul was one of the Canaanite gods back in the Old Testament time period. The name Beelzebul means something like master or lord of the house, lord of the heights. If you think of the name Beel, that comes from Baal, Baal, you know Baal, some of you, that's the God that the Israelites were always warned to stay away from, the God with a little g, Baal, or Baal, the exalted one, becomes Beelzebul, now you may be more familiar with Beelzebub, Uh, actually that is mentioned in the Old Testament, it means Lord of the Flies, that's where that book title comes from, Beelzebub. And it was a mocking or sarcastic, uh, cutting insult to Beelzebul, the Canaanite god. But anyway, by the time of Jesus, Beelzebul had become another name for Satan. He goes by many names in the Bible besides these. Sometimes he's called the devil, Lucifer, the accuser. The adversary, the dragon, the prince of this world, ruler of the powers of the air, and I suppose a list of a dozen or more could be named. But you know that Satan, hopefully you know this, that he was one of the original angels. He rebelled against God, didn't want to be under his authority, took a bunch of other angels with him. They became his demons, and he is active and alive in the world today. What does Satan do? He tempts, he tricks, he lies, he kills, he blinds, he deceives, he destroys, he devours, he discourages, he demonizes, he distorts, he accuses, he obstructs, he hates, he makes war against the church. On and on we could go, but in short, Satan does everything he possibly can do to thwart and to overthrow the kingdom of God and to persuade you and to persuade me to turn our backs on Jesus and join him, the devil, in his evil crusade. 
And if you won't join him, he will make you as miserable a Christian as he can possibly make you to be. Whether you knew it or not, Satan was busy all last week telling you in so many ways that you were crazy for following Jesus, trying to get you to screw up and sin and stop believing God loves you and hate yourself and lose hope and stop praying and all the other things that he hates you to do. Peter says in his letter that your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But oddly enough, despite all these instances of mention about Satan, billions upon billions of people in the world today do not believe he really exists. Even many who profess to be Christians don't believe that Satan is a real personal being. They say he's a mythical force, a a legend, uh, just an evil force in the world, that type of thing. But Jesus certainly believed in Satan. You see this in verses 23 through 27, where he responds to his critics, these Pharisaic scribes. See, the scribes, as I said, were saying that Jesus was from the devil. They said he's possessed by Beelzebul. They weren't saying this to him directly. They were saying it to each other and thinking it in their heads. And Matthew and Luke, in their account of this story, tell us that Jesus knew their thoughts. He knew what they were thinking. He knew what they were saying to each other. And he answered their charge with three or four little parables or illustrations. He didn't say, oh, Satan, he's just a mythical figure. Uh, I'm not going to worry about Satan. No, he answered their criticisms by saying, verse 23, how can Satan cast out Satan? Verse 25, if a house divided against itself uh, is divided against itself, that house will not stand. Verse 26, if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. He's coming to an end. In other words, Jesus is using simple logic to demonstrate how absurd the scribe's charge really is. See, if Jesus were casting out Satan by Satan, he'd be working against himself. That's obvious, right? He'd be at loggerheads within himself. He'd be casting out himself. And this is doomed to fail. Um, You who are married, you understand what it's like sometimes to work at cross purposes, right? You're on opposing sides of the same issue. Whether it be disciplining, how to discipline your kids, how to budget your money, how to plan for the future, whether to move to another city, take a new job, you know how hard it is to make a decision to do anything when you're a house divided. You know, united you stand, divided you fall, right? Well, that's exactly what Jesus is talking about. If Satan is working at cross purposes within himself, nothing's going to happen. But look at the evidence. Demon-possessed people are being healed. Sick people are being made well all over the place. And get this, this is important information for later. According to Matthew and Luke's account of this episode, Jesus had just exorcised a demon out of a man. And Mark chooses not to tell us that information, but it's important. Just before this conversation, they had seen Jesus cast a demon out of a man who was both deaf and mute. That proves 
that Jesus is not casting out demons by the power of Satan. He's casting out demons by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that leads us into our second point. The Holy Spirit is very much important in our understanding of this passage. And here's point number two. There is a sin that is unforgivable. There's no way to avoid that from reading this passage of Scripture. There is a sin that is unforgivable, and that sin is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Look at verses 28 and 29. In verse 28, Jesus starts off by using the word Amen, which is truly Or if you know the old King James language, verily I say to you, of a truth I say to you. That word was reserved for words that Jesus alone would speak in the New Testament. When he comes out with a solemn saying or warning and begins with the word Amen, we're to stop everything and listen carefully. Truly, verse 28, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, And whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an an eternal sin. Now these words have stirred debate all throughout church history. They've troubled many, listen, they've troubled many hearts who didn't need to be troubled But by the same token, they've been ignored, these words have, they've been ignored by untold numbers of people who should have listened to this warning that Jesus gives us about the unforgivable sin. What is the unforgivable sin? That's the question of the hour. Well, thankfully, Mark, in verse 30, gives us an amazing clue. Matthew and Luke don't do this. Mark does. He says in verse 30, that the scribes were saying, and that verb is in the imperfect tense that we've talked about before. It means continual action. So you should read it as, the scribes were saying, and they kept on saying, Jesus has an unclean spirit. And in fact, if you go through the, the, the Gospels, you see that there were other times when the religious experts accused Jesus of being possessed by a devil. So it's not just here, it's many other times. And Mark attaches verse 30 to verse 29 and seems to say, okay, there is an unforgivable sin because these scribes were saying he has an unclean spirit. There's some connection between those two ideas. What were the scribes really doing? They were attributing persistently, over and over and over again, they were attributing to Satan what was clearly recognized, clearly seen, and clearly demonstrated to be the work of the Holy Spirit. Remember what I said earlier. These scribes were Pharisees. They were the religious experts. They were scholars. They were steeped in the Old Testament Scriptures. They knew the prophecies about a coming Messiah who would come out of the line of Judah, who would open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf and set the oppressed free, they should have known better than to say what they're saying here. Because they're witnessing the fulfillment of things they know very well, and yet they choose to reject it. They had studied the genealogies. 
They understood what the prophets had said about a Savior who would be despised and rejected. They had been eyewitnesses of Jesus' miracles. They had heard His sermons. They had heard His amazing teaching and seen its effect upon the people. The redemption that was taking place. The change of life that was taking place. And like I said a few moments ago, my goodness... They had just witnessed an exorcism by Jesus of a demon. But what did they do? They repudiated it. They rejected it. They refused the light that they'd been given. They hardened their hearts against the clear evidence that the Holy Spirit was at work through Jesus, the Son of God. So they said, this man is not who he claims to be. He is Satan himself. He has an unclean spirit. So you see that it's the scribe's action throughout this passage that defines the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Do you understand that? They were calling what was good evil. With their own eyes, says one writer, I like this, they saw the work of the Holy Spirit so clearly That they could not miss it. But then they ascribed the work of the Holy Spirit to the devil. And Jesus says that sin cannot be forgiven. Now let's be clear about a few things. What the unforgivable sin is not. Okay, I've got a list of a few things that that the unforgivable sin is not. First, it's not cursing or saying insulting words about God or Jesus or the Holy Spirit, although that is a serious sin. Blasphemy against the Spirit is not when you doubt or when you struggle to believe the promises of God. It's not when you break one of the Ten Commandments, although that too is a serious sin. And breaking The Ten Commandments sends many people to hell. But that's not the unforgivable sin. And it's not even when you commit a very heinous sin. Some people think that suicide is the unforgivable sin. That's not true. It's not true. And it's not even a temporary denial that you're a Christian. Some of you have studied the history of the church. And you're aware that there have been times of intense persecution uh, in various places of the world when Christians have, in moments of weakness, recanted their faith. That's not the unforgivable sin. Sometimes Christians backslide is a fairly common term that we would use of, of going through a A phase going through a time period where your heart is cold, where uh, you are dabbling in sin, where you're not what you know you should be or could be. That's maybe called backsliding. And it's not the same thing as the unforgivable sin. And it's not even just a sin. It's not an isolated act of disobedience or thoughtless words spoken against God or even a stubborn sin pattern that we are talking about here. Because think about it, there's so many people even in the Bible who were horrible people 
And yet we know they were forgiven. Paul is a great example. 1 Timothy 1 says that he was a blasphemer. He was disobedient. He was even an accessory to the murder of Stephen. Think of David in the Old Testament. Our our wonderful hero King David. What was he? A murderer. He was an adulterer. He was a liar. He was forgiven. Paul was forgiven. Billions of billions and billions of people who have sinned like these men have been and are forgiven. The unforgivable sin is more an entrenched attitude of the heart than it is an act of the mouth. Even though blasphemy is words, right? Spoken. Remember what Jesus said about words? Out of the Heart, the mouth speaks. So the sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit is at bottom a sin of the heart attitude. It's an entrenched attitude of the heart. It's a heart problem, a hardened attitude toward Christ that persists over time. So here's a definition. The unforgivable sin is, it's on the screen, Blasphemy against the Spirit is a firm, persistent, conscious rejection of Jesus by someone who has clearly heard the truth, understood the truth, and on some level experienced the blessings of the gospel. This, this, the person guilty of this sin never has forgiveness. A firm, persistent, conscious rejection. All these adjectives are important. Rejection of Jesus by someone who has heard the truth, understood the truth, and on some level experienced the blessings of the gospel. Why is that person, why does that person never have forgiveness? Because this person will not come to Jesus for forgiveness in the first place. This person will not be forgiven because he or she will not and does not want to meet the conditions of forgiveness. Repenting and believing the gospel. Do you understand that? It's so crucial that you see this. We could turn, if time permitted, we could turn to Hebrews chapter 6 and Hebrews 10. You might want to just jot those references down. Hebrews 6 talks about people who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and yet they have fallen away. Now who is that talking about? It's not talking about true Christians. It's talking about people who come very close to faith, They understand the truth, they see the truth, they've dabbled at the edges of Christianity and they have made that persistent uh, decision to repudiate the light that they have been given. A genuine Christian cannot commit the unforgivable sin. We're looking here not at truly regenerate persons, but people who come very close to faith but then turn their backs on Jesus and all that they know. At some point, friends, at some point, a person can cross the line of unbelief beyond which repentance is impossible. 
He or she can reject the light that she or he have been given over and over and over again until their heart is so cold that they have blasphemed or repudiated the Spirit's work through Jesus Christ. You and I, listen, don't know where that line is for any one individual person. We can't say that that line has been crossed, but there is a line. Jesus says it. The writer of Hebrews says it. The Apostle John talks about a sin that leads to death for which it's pointless to pray. We don't know where that line is in every individual case. And this is so, I want you to hear it, it's not so much that God won't or can't forgive as it is that the person himself or herself declines the offer of forgiveness. It's not like the person comes to God humbly and says, Lord, please have mercy. May I find mercy in your family. And God says to that person, sorry, there's no forgiveness for you. That's not it. The person himself or herself cuts himself off from God's mercy. He or she doesn't want it. And if that attitude persists, if they don't want it long enough, he or she has crossed the line. And God says, okay, have it your way. I have known people who have appeared to be very close to this line. I have known, for example, college professors who made a career out of studying the Bible and exploring spirituality, yet who taught that the Bible is full of myths and folk tales and who have turned untold numbers of young students away from the gospel. They are very close to that line if they have not already crossed it. I know a man in another city, a very good friend of mine at the time, who appeared to be a committed Christian for many years. But he had an affair, he left his wife and kids, and now, last report, he is living with no regard for Jesus, for the church, for the glory of God whatsoever. He appears to be very close to the line, or at least moving in that direction. And if he crosses it, it will be proof that he was never converted in the first place. I think of covenant children. Children of believers who grow up in the church. They hang around the gospel for years. They have listened to hundreds of sermons. Attended dozens and dozens of Sunday school classes and youth retreats and all the rest. They've been enlightened. They have tasted the heavenly gift. They have shared in the Holy Spirit. They've been a part of the covenant community. They've tasted the goodness of the word of God. They've received the benefits of church life and the gospel. But they appear to have repudiated the faith of their fathers and everything that they've been taught. They appear to be moving toward the line. The best biblical example we could think of in this regard is Judas Iscariot. I mean, this is classic. There he was in the very presence of Jesus for three solid years, 
listened to everything Jesus had to say, saw the miracles, was benefited in so many different ways by his friendship with Jesus. But Judas hardened his heart, he betrayed the Lord, and he fell away. And unless he repented before he took his very last breath, we're not told he didn't, we're not told he did, but if he did not repent, it's safe to say Judas Iscariot would be your classic example of of committing the unforgivable sin, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Now, I, uh, I started today by talking about someone who was worried about whether she was guilty of this unforgivable sin. And maybe even in the course of my talking about it, I've awakened the very same worry in you and in your heart. I want to say as your pastor something that I hope will encourage you and comfort you because I'm aware of how devastatingly hard this truth is. I want to comfort you by letting you know that if you are worried that you've committed the unforgivable sin, if you are bothered that perhaps it is you who have repudiated your faith in Jesus, if this bothers you and you're concerned about it, and you want to make sure that you're not one of those, then that makes it certain that you have not committed the unforgivable sin. Because only those who have committed it would not care. It would not bother them. Because it would bounce right off of their heart, as it did apparently these scribes. In fact, you might have already gotten up and walked out today if you had committed the unforgivable sin. So why does God give you these warnings? Why is it in the Bible? Why do we read it and study it and talk about it? He gives you this warning so that you check your temperature. And so that if you sense that you're growing cold toward Christ, you will fly to the fireplace of God's grace and warm your heart by the fire of His love. And He gives us this warning so that there are a lot of people in this room If there's someone out there who is thinking about throwing it all away, the things that you know, thinking about walking away, throwing in the towel, not wanting to be a part of the Christian family, it's in here so that that person will say, wait a minute, wait a minute, I don't want to be one of those people. I don't want to be guilty of an eternal sin. I will arise, as the song says, and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in His arms. In the arms of my dear Savior, oh, there are 10,000 charms. So that brings me to the last thing I want to say. Let's wrap up by looking at this third truth out of this text. There is a Savior who forgives everyone who comes to Him for mercy. There is a Savior who forgives everyone who puts his or her trust in him. Look at verse 28. Because really, when you think about it, verse 28 is astounding. And we're tempted to skirt right over verse 28 because we know that verse 29 is going to talk about something that's fascinating, the unforgivable sin. But let's not skirt over it. Look at verse 28. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, All sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. Do you hear that? Again, I think we don't 
hear it because we go straight to verse 29. We want to know about, you know, have I committed the unforgivable sin and so on. Listen to verse 28. All sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. How many sins? All. How many blasphemies? Whatever. Matthew and Luke even add something that's very surprising. They say, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. The one and only exception to this blank check of forgiving grace is what we've been talking about. Resolute, consistent, settled repudiation of Jesus and the truth of the gospel. All other sins can be wiped away. It doesn't matter who you are, where you've been, what you've done. John 6.37 Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Matthew 11.28 Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Romans 10.9 If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. It doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done. And I ask, how can that be true? How can God's grace be so free? How can His forgiveness be so unlimited? Well, it's because of verse 27, which I've purposely left to last. Look at verse 27. No one, Jesus says, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. And I suspect many of us are, well, what has that got to do with anything? It has everything to do with it. Who is the strong man? Satan. Who is the stronger man with a capital M? That's Jesus. Jesus has entered the strong man's house, tied him up, bound him up, and plundered his house. What what that's saying is that Jesus on the cross... And three days later when Jesus rose from the grave and 40 days after that when Jesus ascended to heaven and took his seat at the right hand of the Father, Jesus gave the devil a definitive death blow. He crushed the head of the serpent. He bound him. Somebody has compared this Satan to a dog who's been chained up. And I know he still has a bark. He still has a bite. But as Kevin DeYoung said it, he's on the way to the pound. This devil, this enemy is on the way to the pound. Do you remember what Jesus said shortly before his arrest in John 12? He said, now is the judgment of this world. Now is the ruler of this world cast out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. When Jesus Christ, you see, was lifted up on the cross, he plundered Satan's house. See, Satan had a a prison, you might say. And it was full of people. You and me and all of God's children were in that house. Captive by Satan. And on the cross, Jesus invaded that house and he bound Satan and he plundered his goods. He set those captives free. Free from the penalty of sin. Free from the power of sin. Free from condemnation. Free from the voice of the accusing conscience. Free from ever having to pay for our sin. Can you believe that? 
we will never, ever be called to account for sins that have been already forgiven. It doesn't matter how bad you've been. If Jesus made you pay, even if it's to feel guilty about it, he would not be a just God. He's paid all for one. He has paid once for all on the cross by the blood of Jesus. Because Jesus paid it all, you don't have to. By his wounds, you have been healed. Because Satan is bound, you are loosed. We sang it earlier, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell it. That word, Jesus, the stronger man. Do you believe this? Do you believe Satan has been bound so you don't have to be? And one day he'll be destroyed forever, he and all his demons, in the lake of fire. If you're trusting in Jesus, you are a trophy of God's grace. Don't you for a moment think that you're condemned by God for what you've done. You are forgiven. My wife and I will never forget the evening that one of our children visited us because she wanted to tell us something. And she said, Mom, Dad, I want to confess something. And she got no more than three or four words out. And we knew where she was going. And we just, Susie and I came around her and wrapped her in our arms. And we wept and we wept together. And we said, you're forgiven. We forgive you. We forgive you. We forgive you. She didn't have to say anything more. Just like the prodigal son who came home. And the father ran out to meet him. And he didn't get even a sentence out before the father said, Come home, son. Let's have a party. You're forgiven. That's how the father feels about you. Truly, I say to you, says Jesus, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. There has never and will never be a person In all of human history. Who comes humbly to Jesus saying. Lord have mercy. To whom Jesus would dare say. No. Let's pray. Oh Lord thank you for the good news. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for plundering the house of our enemy. Thank you for setting us free. Thank you for letting us go for breaking the chains of bondage to sin and misery and guilt and shame. Thank you that adulterers and thieves and murderers and uh, child predators and everybody else in all those categories can be forgiven because the fountain of grace is flowing big and broad and deep. Thank you that grace is greater than all our sin. Thank you that you've overcome the enemy And he is a defeated enemy. He is bound. He is no good for us. And one day we'll all witness his utter destruction. Thank you, Jesus, for the gospel. I pray that the Holy Spirit, if there is anyone here who needs to set things right with you, will not delay another moment, but will ask Jesus 
Take my sins away. I don't want to be guilty of an eternal sin. I want to live with you and your family forever. Will you, Holy Spirit, please do that work among us, we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.